trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Why you saying we talk, it ain't last a week, but you liking my story, you gassing me. Are you going to rap or be an athlete? If I'm still doing both, why you asking me? Real rich when I shop, I need cash receipts. Wake up and ball, get the cash repeat. Got the city on lock, I been had the key. You can't pay for the feature, don't ask the fee. Do it, I run it up, feel like the renegade. I got a Puma deal, I don't get energies. I had to mix up the Sprite with the lemonade. If you try me, they coming, I send the game. I'm not an amateur, know me in Canada. I put on drip when they bring out the camera. Red carpet, I'm lit, man, I'm flammable I keep eating these rappers like cannibals And I just added up, ain't no subtraction Ain't get to the bag enough, ain't no distraction And you getting mad because ain't no attachment I want the Bentley, I think I'm a mad I got the water, but I want the pad They want the smoke, but they don't want the status They want the issue, I swear you can have it You know that I miss you, but don't be dramatic They see it on tape, so they know I'm a killer Welcome to Trauma Code on WBAI This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald uh, In studio for the moment uh, and that was, uh, I'm curious how many listeners recognized Flau J, Flau J, uh, Johnson, the freshman guard for the, uh, Louisiana State University, uh, women's basketball team, the, uh, NCAA champions from yesterday. Uh, in addition to being, uh, a freshman guard, as I mentioned, she is also, uh, a hip hop artist. She's the niece of Lil Boozy from Baton Rouge. Um, so, uh, uh, just a nice moment to recognize, uh, you know, we've talked about the cultural phenomenon that is college basketball in the United States. Um, but also, you know, that, uh, that LSU team, uh, I'm from Baltimore. A lot of people from Baltimore are also celebrating, uh, their star player, Angel Reese, uh, who had more double doubles than I could count, uh, consistently scoring and rebounding, um, uh, so I just wanted to celebrate that win. Uh, we can be LSU fans, at least for the day. And I know uh, there was some controversy that I'm not even going to talk about because uh, they defeated uh, Iowa and the uh, their star player, Caitlin Clark, who's been lights out uh, throughout the whole tournament, excellent uh, basketball player and three-point shooter. Um, and all I have to say about that is, you know, let the, let, let the young people play, let the young people celebrate and have fun and express their joy. Um, I don't think anybody got hurt. And I think if Caitlin Clark, uh, wants to, um, have her revenge, the sweetest revenge would be to come back next year, lights out, uh, and win the tournament. So that's all that I have to say about that. And we have an excellent, uh, show today, an interview with, uh, a surgeon out of University of Chicago on the south side and the director of their trauma center. Uh, and we touch a little bit on uh, some basketball in the episode. Um, and uh, I think people who are familiar with uh, really students of the history of basketball may recognize the name Benji Wilson. And, and we're going to talk about how central he was to the history of trauma surgery on the south side of Chicago and Illinois and the United States more generally. Uh, so, that's uh, something to look forward to on today's show, uh, and that interview uh, is recorded, but just happened the other day in the wake of the shooting in Nashville where three children were murdered. Um, so, uh, you know, th that's the context that we have these conversations uh, on the Trauma Code about how to uh, end or mitigate or do something about this firearm violence, which in many ways is completely preventable, uh, and so we'll definitely get into that. 
Um, and uh, before we get into that interview, we are going to have uh, a little bit of uh, musical interlude. Um, we like to, you know, it's always great to give people their flowers while they're here to enjoy it uh, and share it with us. But definitely when people pass away, it's a moment uh, to take stock of somebody's accomplishments. And a lot of times it's, you know, the first time that, that their their history, their their uh, experience and their work really comes into focus for us. And uh, that's the case for me with uh, a Japanese pianist and uh, composer who just passed away at, I think, the age of 71, Ryuichi Sakamoto. Um, forgive me if, you know, I never learned Japanese, so my pronunciation may be off. Um, but uh, this is someone whose music uh, has probably we've all heard on many film scores that he's been involved with. Um, and really just a, a beautiful pianist whose name I don't think I'd ever seen or spoken uh, before he just passed away. Um, so without uh, and too much delay, I will say Dr. Uh, Raphael can't be in studio today. Um, but uh, she'll be back uh, on the next episodes. Uh, and uh, we're going to hear again after this musical interlude an interview with Dr. Selwyn Rogers, Rogers from the University of Chicago. And before that, here's some music by Ryuichi Sakamoto. So welcome to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, uh, and I have on the line uh, another accomplished trauma surgeon out of Chicago, Dr. Selwyn Rogers. Dr. Rogers, can you hear us? Yes, sir. Dr. Fitzgerald, thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, it's a, p a pleasure, and um, you know, I reached out to you um, after reading an article that you had in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the premier academic journals, called Hope Beyond Firearm Trauma. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I would like to introduce you a little bit to our audience and give a little bit of the context um, from which you write that. Um, so, Dr. Well, Rogers, thank you so much. correct me if I get anything wrong, um, but you are Absolutely. the a professor of surgery at the University of Chicago, where you're also the executive vice president of community health engagement, uh, the chief of the section of trauma and acute care surgery, as well as the founding director of the trauma center there at the University of Chicago on the south side. Do I have all that right? 
That is completely correct, sir. Thank Thanks. you so much. And I guess the first step uh, is just to know, uh, who are you, Dr. Rogers? Uh, where are you from? And if that's a complicated question, where did you go to high school? Sure. So um, I like to answer that question um, in a series of three parts. Um, so the first part is the audacity of ignorance. The second part is a power of mentorship. And then the third part is making the most of opportunities. So I was born on the uh, Caribbean island of St. Thomas in the United States Virgin Islands, the child of Mali, the capital of the United States Virgin Islands. But I grew up on the island of St. Croix, which is right next door. And growing up on St. Croix, um, I went to public schools throughout my education there. And I went to St. Croix Central High School. It's called St. Croix Central High School because it's the only high school and it's in the central part of the island, an island of 84 square miles. And, I, and at St. Croix Central High School, there were uh, no AP classes, no advanced classes, um, and pretty solid school uh, by public school standards. Uh, but I also uh, didn't have much in the way of other things. And obviously, this is the age before computers. Um, and so the audacity of my ignorance is I was good at science, and I, I liked the idea of using my knowledge of science to help others. So I looked up Encyclopedia Britannica, the letter M, and there was this topic of medicine and medical schools. And because it's an encyclopedia and it's not a Wikipedia, I had to see only two medical schools, Johns Hopkins and Harvard. So my audacity of ignorance, not knowing how competitive those schools were, but knowing that I had to go to college to go to medical school, I applied to those two schools. And long story short, went to Harvard College, Harvard Medical School. The second act is the power of mentorship and sponsorship. Along the way, I had incredible mentors who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and that gravitated me towards a career in surgery, largely because I want to take care of whole people, uh, not necessarily parts of people. I didn't want to be a breast surgeon or a thyroid surgeon. I wanted to be a whole person surgeon, and that gravitated me towards general surgery and ultimately trauma and critical care. And then the last bit of the third act of my professional development was largely this idea of making the most of opportunities. I took my first job down at Vanderbilt and Meharry, uh, making the most of opportunities. I got a master's in public health because I wanted to understand how social and economic factors affected health outcomes in the space of surgical care, especially surgical disparities. Um, I then got recruited back to the Brigham Women's Hospital where I trained in general surgery to be the ICU director. I found that I actually was not bad. In fact, I was good at leadership. And then it took on a number of progressive leadership opportunities at the program, making the most of opportunity, and then was tapped to be the chair of surgery and surgeon chief at Temple University Health System in Philadelphia, and then became the chief medical officer at University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston until I landed where I am now, which is on the south side of Chicago at the University of Chicago Medicine leading the trauma center here. Excellent. And uh, uh, I'm sure a, a lot of our Brooklyn audience will be a little bit familiar uh, 
we have, uh, you know, with that experience in the growing up in the Caribbean islands, uh, where we have a lot of Caribbean listeners, I think, where our home is uh, in downtown Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, I definitely appreciate that, that the point you make, the value of mentorship, even lifting while you climb is a lesson we have to remind ourselves, even if we struggle to help uh, those around us and just behind us to, to come up with us. Um, and I think that's a great point. If I may interject, Dr. Please. Gerald, I define my life now, my professional life, by two words, excellence and a commitment to diversity of all types. And so I'm constantly trying to diversify the rooms in which I get to walk and sit. And that is a fundamental construct that informs my decision-making, my intentionality. But it's not about just representation. It's about excellence and representation. Excellent. We have to do both. And even though we're, we're calling from New York, I think students of history, people who are familiar with Chicago, may recognize, and I think those who don't, it, it's worth taking a moment to learn and to recognize what it meant to have this trauma center uh, in the south side of Chicago at the University of Chicago, right, which is uh, a, a premier medical institution, a, a premier institution of higher learning. But for a long time, you know, since there was a formalization of trauma care, seemed to want to stay out of the trauma business, uh, or at least that's what it felt like for a lot of people in the community. You know, tell me if that's unfair, but do you want to tell us a little bit of your understanding of the history of the trauma center of the University of Chicago and the role that the community played in, in having one founded there? That's a great question. I start off by saying I wasn't here at the time, but history is what is written about in the textbooks and the newspapers, and it's also living history where people tell you the spoken word and there had been an adult level one trauma center at the university of chicago prior to 1989 for a combination of economic and resource issues the university of chicago decided to discontinue its adult level one trauma center in 1989 but continued its pediatric level one trauma center at, at now comer children's hospital uh, at the time the decision was made, there was another level one trauma center at Michael Reese Hospital, which is a large community hospital that was a bit of a hybrid. They weren't necessarily affiliated with the medical school, but they had academic programs and emergency training programs. And it was a large hospital that had a level one trauma center. Having said that, in 1991, they closed their adult level one trauma center. And to put it in the context, the south side of Chicago, a city... Uh, the city of Chicago is about 2.9 million people. About 650,000 people live on the south side. There's actually no tra there's no city of that size, 650,000 people. By the way, that in itself would put it in the top 20% of sizes of cities um, in the United States, um, just the south side. There's none of those cities of that size and that magnitude that does not have an adult level one trauma center. Moreover, back in that time in the early 90s, the city of Chicago had on the order of 900 homicides. So it was not like there was not a lot of trauma, especially firearm-related injuries on the south side of Chicago. So the story goes for the next almost three decades, 27 years, that there was no adult level one trauma center. There are a couple of seminal events uh, 1984, the Michael Jordan of his time, Benji Wilson, Benjamin Wilson, high school phenom that was going to be in the show in the NBA, was being recruited 
by Indiana and Illinois and DePaul. And he was a senior. And he was walking midday school to get something for lunch with his girlfriend and bumped into two teen- teenagers his age, 17, 18, and literally bumped into them. Normally, that should be, sorry, man, and you move on. That escalated, and one of the teenagers shot Benji twice, and he was taken to St. Bernard Hospital, which is a small community hospital on the south side, where he waited hours and ultimately died of hemorrhagic shock. That led to a change of the Illinois Department of Public Health rules that Chicago Fire Department, emergency medical services, if they were going to transport a severely injured patient, what we call level one, the highest level, you had to take that person to an adult level one trauma center. That's important because in 2010, August, there's another teenager, another black male teenager, 18-year-old, about to be 19-year-old, Damian Turner. And he was shot four blocks from the New York Chicago and because the University of Chicago was not a trauma center for adults, he was taken to Northwestern, and he died. And his mother the next day said that if the University of Chicago, four blocks away from where my son was shot, were an adult level one trauma center, my son would still be alive. The, po- the power of that story is because Damon Turner was well-known. He was an equivalent to Benji Wilson, but not at sports. He was a community activist before we talked about community activism we, the way we do today. And he was advocating for uh, fair housing and rent control as a teenager. And all of the advocates, peer group that he organized rallied around this idea of trauma center now on the south side of Chicago at the University of Chicago. Activism by the community, activation by the community advocating for change and the change became the Adult Level 1 Trauma Center. Decision that went from no to yes, and I was recruited in 2016 and arrived January of 2017 to be the founding director of the Trauma Center. So without that activism, I would not be in Chicago. Well, and I'm really um, happy that you shared all that history. And in fact, in my notes of what to ask you, I had the history of Benji Wilson um, to bring up because, uh, and I'm glad you, you stated it that way, my understanding was always that his death, and, and as you describe it, really a preventable death most likely, if he'd have been at the right hospital, at least the way that we run things now, he would have been diagnosed and treated right away and would have had a good chance of a, of a good recovery. Um, and that happened right outside of uh, Simi. That's a yeah. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go, please finish and then I'll, I'll add. Well, my commentary. Like I said, I'm I'm a student history and and a big fan of sports um, and the intersection of sports and politics. And the name of Simeon High School still rings out as a place um, with a deep tradition of of a strong um, basketball tradition. And I know that Simeon High School is on that south by southwest side. So, you know, it's sort of halfway between for people who know the city, as I recall, between Christ Advocate, which is a trauma center now, and, um, and University of Chicago. But Someone shot at Simeon now may well end up at the University of Chicago Trauma Center. So I never understood why with that history, you know, that that hole in the map of trauma centers remains. So I think um, connecting those histories and, and that movement of the community to demand um, the care that was needed in in light of the the pathology of, of the violence, the gun violence in that area. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you for Absolutely. bringing all that history together. 
I'll add one comment that, that you mentioned with respect to Benji Wilson and Simeon Rice Academy, which is indeed and still remains a powerhouse as you know a feeder to the NBA and a, certainly a feeder to Division One ba- uh, basketball. Benji was shot around twelve thirty. He was taken to St. Bernard, which was the closest hospital, but not the closest trauma center, because there was no rule about that at the time in '84. There was no standardization. There was no, no systematic, systematic approach to what we have now. And Bernard is a, is a small hospital. There was no surgeon available in the hospital. There was limited blood capabilities. And to be clear, Benji was shot twice, once in the groin and once in the back. And he was alive at the scene. He was alive in transport. And he was alive upon arrival to St. Bernard. And it took another three hours plus before he got to the operating room. And he was alive up until then. And he was alive in the operating room. The point I make about all of those statements is that the same person today who makes it through that degree of hemorrhagic shock with all of those hours and blood loss going by would 100% be alive today when faced with the same injury. Right. And so that informed how not only in the Midwest or in Chicago and Illinois, but I think nationally, how we dealt with trauma. Um, so I, I think uh, the point from that is that, you know, the University of Chicago Trauma Center is really rich with history, even though it's a very sort of young institution, a young trauma center. And, and so to be clear, we're about to celebrate our fifth anniversary on May 1st of 2018. We opened May 1st of 2018. On May 1st of 2023, another six, eight weeks from now. Actually, less than eight weeks. Wow. Wow. Another five weeks from now. Time flies. We will be, five years, we'll be celebrating our nickel anniversary. Anything else that you wanted to uh, mention in in, in discussing the the history of the trauma center that you lead? Well, I, I would say that without the community activism across a wide coalition that included Youth organizations like Southside Together Organization, Southside Together Organizing for Power, Stop, Fly, Fearless, Leading by the Youth, University of Chicago faculty, students of all shades and ages and stages of their educational development, faith groups, basically a broad-based coalition working together for a common goal, accomplished pressure that it took to get the University of Chicago Medicine and the University of Chicago to change their approach and decision around the value of having an adult level one trauma center at the University of Chicago Medicine. And you've already shared with us a little bit about your patients, but do you want to say anything more about the clinical work that you do and the patients that you treat? Um, you know, there's so many stories. I feel, you know, I think it was Curtis Blow that said there are 7 million stories in a naked city. Quote me. Someone fact check me <laughs> on that. I'm going to fact check myself because I'm kind of showing my past because, I, I, you know, growing up, I, I actually, even though I grew up in the Virgin Islands, my, my dad lived in Brooklyn during this time. My parents divorced when I was three. And so I remember finally coming up and visiting my cousins who lived in Bed-Stuy. Uh, Bedford Stuyvesant and, um, and, and, and playing, 
uh, I don't even remember what this was called, but you take a ball and you stick ball in, uh, in the streets and throwing <laughs> and getting the fire hydrants uh, opened up so we can get cooled off since there's no air conditioning. I remember all that stuff very well. I, I bring that all up to say, though, that um, this is universal. You know, I think people are traumatized and traumatically injured from Brooklyn to Iowa City to Milwaukee, to Boise, Idaho. Trauma is a universal disease, not just in the United States, but across the world. And unfortunately, I have to pay slight homage given the timing of this, that we just lost six lives, three kids nine years old, and three adults in their early 60s, too soon through the ravages of gun violence. And since we opened May 1st of 2018 on the South Side of Chicago at the University of Chicago Medicine, we have taken care of over 22,000 trauma patients. Large number, but what's daunting about that number, even sad about that number, is that 40%, four zero, not 14, 40% of our patients are victims of firearm-related injuries. That means that last year when we took care of 5,000 trauma activations, 2,000 people were shot on the south side of Chicago and came to us for care. The city of Chicago is about 2.9 million people. The city of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada is 2.7 million people. There were 797 homicides in the city of Chicago. Over 90% of those were by firearms. In the city of Vancouver, last year, 2022, there were 27 homicides total. The difference between those cities is not income inequality. Both places have it. And it's not racial segregation. Both places have it. Uh, it's not economic lack of opportunities. Both places have it. The difference is a universal access to guns in one place and a restricted access in the other. Because people north of the border, and they call themselves Canadians, are not inherently less violent than people south of the U.S.-Canada border. We're the same people. We have not evolved. We're not genetically predispositioned to violence any more than our Canadian neighbors. Well, and you know that you brought up the shooting at the Covenant School in um, Nashville, and, uh, you know, we all kind of have the feeling that nothing will change in the political interests that are in uh, positions of power. But I, it, it has seemed to have resonated with, um, you know, a lot of people, politicians, even sportscasters. I know uh, I think Dan Libertard kind of really lost it and started cursing on the air talking about dead children because that uh, is, is really what we're dealing with. And as you mentioned, just across the border in cities that are very similar, um, you know, we don't see that that level of gun violence and uh, what that does to our communities. So I, I guess, you know, it was within that context that you recently wrote an article for uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, the premier, premier medical journal, journal called uh, Hope Beyond Firearm Trauma. You know, why did you think it was important to write this article? What was, you know, what were you trying to say? And, and why in that forum, the academic medical journal? Dr. Fitzgerald, it's a great question, and as you ask it, I still have the same 
reaction I had when I penned it on my iPhone at two o'clock in the morning. I have chills. And the reason why I have chills is that the article, Hope Beyond Fire on Trauma, is a culmination of 20 years of doing this work. And one of the startling realities of firearm-related injuries, irrespective of being Republican or Democrat, progressive or conservative, is that we're all people. And when we as healthcare participants, I hate the word providers because I don't think of us as providers, healers, how about that? We're as healthcare healers, uh, we invest in healing. And this is nurses, this is environmental services, this is occupational therapists, this is chaplain, physicians of all types, residents of all types, psychiatrists, medical students. As we're all in this space called the trauma bay, or we're throughout the hospital where the trauma center lies, the trauma, trauma patients touch all parts of the hospital, from the reception room where a grieving loved one comes in to see their dead body of their loved one, to the operating rooms, interventional radiology suites, ICUs, wards throughout the hospital. The reality is we often are forgotten, we, the healthcare healers, are forgotten that we're people. And when we meet people on the worst day of their life, when they have been a victim of a firearm-related injury that rips through their chest or severs their spinal cord or injures their liver, small bowel, stomach, kidney, and there's an abdomen full of blood, and we fill our arms with the blood as we're trying to stem the flow and arrest the hemorrhage so that we can save a life and remove the damaged organs, fix the damaged bone. When we are in that space, and despite all the things that we do and have been trained to do, and we lose one of our patients, which is a euphemism for someone dies, we have to deal with that death of that human being. Yeah, at least at Human Chicago Medicine Trauma Center, we have a moment of silence. People can do whatever they want because it's not a moment of prayer. It's not a moment of meditation. It's a moment of just giving grace and space to another lost life. And we just ask for the grace to realize that another life has been lost despite all our best efforts. In the context of that lost life, we all have to grieve a little bit. But you know what? We don't have time to grieve because we got to move on to the next thing. Because you know what the next thing is? we got to go to the mother, that father, that brother, that sister, that friend and share with them the news that they are not waiting for. That despite our best efforts, their loved one is dead. And I've had mothers in particular scream, they're not dead, you have the wrong person. Or more profoundly, go back, you can go save them. Go back, 
why are you here? Go back. And when that happens, I have to be stern, but not mean. I have to be present and not absent. I have to look them in the face, make that very hard eye contact, affirm that I see them, and I see their pain, and I see their suffering, but indeed, their son, their daughter, their husband, their father is dead and will not come home ever again. Wow. And I wanted to share that in the world's most prestigious medical journal because it's a story that unfortunately is not told enough, which is a story of how all of this impacts us as healthcare healers and how it takes a chunk out of us, out of our souls. But in the midst of all of that, we remember what we in surgery in particular, trauma surgery, love to call the great saves. The person who got shot in the heart and you did the thing, opening their chest and putting a finger in the hole and getting them up to the operating room and sewing the hole together. And the person walks up the hospital. You never forget that feeling when the person looks at you and says, thank you. It's a very you know surreal feeling because you know that you stood in the way. Kind of some, you know, godlike way. You stood in the way based on your training and your experience and, and the team around you to save a life. There's no more powerful gift than that. And the only reward that I ever look forward to is two words. Thank you. But that thank you comes at a price. The price is all those other losses. And I wanted to humanize those losses. I wanted to humanize impact upon me and so many others, including the environmental services staff, who literally may have known the person lying on that gurney and has to mop up the blood after we've done everything we can to save that life that we couldn't save. The power of the article, though, has to do with the fact of how I ended, which is a picture of hope. When you see someone who has been dramatically injured by a firearm and you would think all hope was lost. And in that moment, you have this power of humanity where another human being who has had a different life course, the doctor, the surgeon, is sitting with the patient at the bedside, sharing a meal, knowing that this is a form of communion, a form of love. My wife loves to say food is love. But what's more powerful than being able to share a meal with another human being, especially one that you know you helped save their life? You've covered a lot of ground, and in that article, you know, you talk about, as you have just now, what, what bullets do to bodies, what that loss can do to loved ones in the community and the way people handle it, and including the burden on those of us who receive the patient and, and, and do our best to try to get them through their worst moments. And then, as you mentioned, the simple joys of recovery, uh, you talk about a, a meal of Wendy's, uh, you know, having profound effects um, for someone who's just able to eat for the first time after recovering from intestinal injuries. But what what I got from the article maybe was a little bit unspoken, but what I recognize from my uh, my own history and experience is in that hope 
what I got was implied was that another world was possible, that this is not um, the necessary future just because it's our, our present and in some ways our past. Um, you know, do you agree with, with, with that uh, sentiment? You know, one of the great things about writing as an art form is that it's subject to interpretation, just like a painting or just like a song. And you hit upon what I hope resonated with those who, quote unquote, read between the lines. The world does not have to be this way. The implication being we talk after a firearm-related injury a little about recovery physically. We don't talk about the psychological burden, the psychiatric illnesses like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, hypervigilance. We don't talk about how that even affects the, quote, unquote, the healers, the nightmares, our own hypervigilance, our own fears. But the world could be different. You know, one of the references I made in the article was around second chances. And, you know, we talk about, oh, my goodness, look what happened. You got a shot. You have a second lease on life. What if we didn't have to rely on second chances? What if we had a beloved community where we gave every child a great first chance at maximizing their human potential? That would be a beautiful thing. That would be a beloved community. That would be an incredible testimony to the power of people who care about each other working together for a common cause across their differences. Because even though there are differences by race, ethnicity, gender, politics, despite the differences, we're all people. We're all humans. We want to love. We want to hug, hug, we want to hold, we want to cherish, we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to eat, we want to care, we want to be. And what if we really invested from the moment someone comes out of the womb to maximizing their potential, having them become their best self? And when there are things that are off the beaten path or off plan A, as they say, what if we surrounded them with love and really invested in them? When you think about all the things that Dr. Fitzgerald, you and I have had and allow us to have the agency to be on this podcast today, we're blessed. But when you see a turtle on a fence post, quoting Alex Haley, they had help. And you and I had help. Had I don't get a chance to ask you because I'm not interviewing you. You're interviewing me. But I know you had help. I had a lot of help. And without that help, I would not be on this podcast today. But if we are surrounded everyone, every child, every boy, every girl, with the help that allowed you and I to be who we are today. That's what I hope you can read between the lines of my article. So, you know, you've answered quite a bit of what that other world might look like. And maybe you're starting to tell us, um, but do you want to say anything else about how do we get there to that other world as possible? You obviously are, are an astute podcast host because you are reading my mind, or at least you are listening to what I'm saying. What that other world looks like, 
is a world where it's not a they problem. It's a we problem. It's not an over there problem. It's a here and an us problem. And it's that degree of cohesion of people. We call that families. But what if we're also, they're families of origin, right? There's your mother or father. You have to have those two things. Even if it's in vitro fertilization, there is an egg and there's a sperm that come together to form a human embryo. And then there's cereal for those who remember their high school biology, meiosis and mitoses to become an organism that becomes a human being that then interfaces with the environment, nature, nurture to become the fully developed creature that we call Selwyn in my case. And when we have that reality of how we define ourselves as whatever our God-given names are, when we have that, you become Simon, I become Selwyn, and then we are in the world and we can influence the next ripple effects of people. The incredible thing about all of that is every interaction helps us on our journey to become our best self. How can we create an individualized program so all of us are our best selves? So my blueprint for this utopia that I describe is just treating everyone like you would want yourself to be treated, the old-fashioned golden rule. And that golden rule breaks down all the divisions that we're seeing in this country today. Well, Dr. Rogers, uh, I do want to uh, thank you for your time and for spreading some of your uh, uh, experience and, and love and thoughts uh, from the South Side of Chicago uh, to, you know, your childhood memories in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn's happy to have you, even if just virtually back for a little bit. But before I let you go, I mean, first of all, is there anything else about the topics we've discussed that you want to uh, mention before we before we wrap up? Well, I, I want to thank you. I, I really do want to thank you for this opportunity, Dr. Fitzgerald. I, I, I think that uh, podcasting is yet another medium. It's, it's an art form. You know, it's it's a new way, a new medium of communicating. And uh, I certainly hope that the listeners listeners have gotten something out of this half an hour of their time if they stuck with it the whole time. But I want to just leave with you know my sense of the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all is I would never have imagined a small-town boy from this island of St. Croix who has taken a journey from Baltimore to Boston to Nashville to Boston, Philadelphia, Galveston, Texas, now Chicago, would be on this podcast today. That's the power of possibility. Indeed. You know, you I would hope that we can have that possibility for every boy and girl in this country, irrespective of their geography their race, their ethnicity, where they're lucky or not lucky to be born and to, to grow. Definitely. And, and you and I have communicated in the past, but I'm very appreciative of the time and the, the opportunity to have a conversation with you. And I did want to, you know, share your article in the New England Journal with people who, you know, aren't likely to read the New England Journal, but can still benefit um, from your thoughts and your experience. Um, but before I let you go, whenever I have a guest on, I do like to ask for a little bit of a creative, a cultural recommendation, something you've been reading or a movie or music or 
performance or visual art that you would share with our audience that we might not um, otherwise uh, uh, know about or experience? Sure. I, I, thanks for that question. You know, it's a bit of a curveball, but, uh, but I'm going to take it. I actually did something that I try not to do. I try not to talk a lot. I'm a natural introvert. I, I, am, I, am, I am not the, the life of the party. Um, I actually spent a fair bit of time very introspective and listening. To that point, book I recently read that reinforced the power of listening is called You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy. And it basically says a number of examples and stories around the power of using the thing that you have two of more and using the thing you have one of less and how that opens up possibilities. You're not listening. Kate Murphy. Excellent. Well, you know, thank you for again, Dr. Uh, Dr. Rogers, for spending the time. Uh, and if you're just uh, joining us, you've been uh, listening to Dr. Selwyn Rogers from the University of Chicago Trauma Center here on Trauma Code, and I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. And so welcome back to Trauma Code. That was just our interview with uh, Dr. Selwyn Rogers of the University of Chicago Trauma Center. Uh, and this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio. Uh, and while we were listening to that recording, I just uh, got word that in Nashville, actually, students are filling up the uh, Capitol building uh, in Tennessee demanding an assault weapons ban since uh, that shooting at the Covenant School uh, that killed three children was carried out using an assault rifle. So, you know, sometimes it, it's hard to keep hope, but these young people uh, are, are, I think, uh, our biggest inspiration. Uh, and I think... As we wrap up the show, I uh, just want to remind you to, uh, you know, support WBAI. If you appreciate us, we appreciate you. Uh, we, you know, I donate my time, but can't do that without the infrastructure uh, of the radio station. And, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, the history of WBAI radio. And that pledge number is 212-209-2950, 212 2950, and you can give online at give to wbai.org or uh, look at the donate button on wbai.org. Although I have to get with uh, the people that run the site because at the moment you cannot choose Trauma Code as your favorite uh, radio show. So I have to have them add that on so we, uh, you know, we can let people know how much uh, you appreciate the show when you're supporting the station. Uh, for now, feel free to choose all WBAI programming, and we'll, we'll see if we can take credit for that. Um, but uh, if you want to reach out to us, uh, you can reach out through the website or uh, at uh, traumacodewbai at gmail.com or on social media under traumacodewbai on uh, Instagram and uh, on Twitter for now as long as that platform remains active. Uh, and uh, definitely you can find us, our archives, on the WBAI archive site as well as wherever you get your podcasts uh, under Trauma Code. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. Joining us, This has been Trauma Code, and we'll finish up with one more song by Ryuichi Sakamoto.
Good afternoon. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour.